The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Alright, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn there. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We're going to be moving around a lot today uh, in around chapter 6, 7, kind of in that ballpark. So be ready to turn your pages or click that little next button on your iPhone. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. So, let me ask you this question. Have you ever tried to explain something to someone, and as you're talking to them, you start realizing by their facial expressions that they have no clue what you're, what you're saying to them? You're trying to explain whatever it is, and it's all over their face. They are not tracking with you. They're not getting it, right? I mean, we've had conversations like that. Uh, I, uh, for a long time, taught drum lessons uh, for kids, and I uh, was doing drum lessons with this kid one time. And with drums, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to teach them. It's, it's a counting thing. So you're counting in your head one and two and three and four. And so you hit the snare drum at a certain point. You hit the kick drum at a certain point. And so I'm trying to tell him this beat to learn. And it's the, the very first, like, thing that you're supposed to play. It's the rudimentary, like, basic foundational thing that you teach a kid to play drums. And it's, it's like the easiest thing that any drummer starts with. And so I'm trying to get this kid to understand what we're doing here. And I guess in his mind, he's just, he's going to go from nothing to rock star just like that. And so he's not listening to me. Like he's just not getting it. Cause I'd say, all right, we're going to do this one and two and just try to explain it to him. And then I'd hand him the drumsticks. He'd sit down and he'd be like, and like just hitting random stuff, right? Not even trying to play what I told him to play. And so I'd sit back and all right, now listen to me. Look at me in the face. This is what I'm trying to tell you to play this. Just real basic. Handing back the sticks and again, just like random stuff like if you handed it to a two-year-old, right? And so just, just totally not getting it at all. And sometimes that's the way it is, right? You, you, you try to explain something over and over and over again, but for whatever reason, it's just not computing in the other person's brain. For our kids, we have this rule uh, they're not allowed to eat in their bedrooms. No food in the bedrooms, no snacks, no Cokes, no nothing, because they're basically like rats, and they're going to bring their little furry friends into the house because they're going to leave food everywhere. And so we, we've made that rule, no food, no drinks in the bedroom. It's got to stay in the kitchen. I can't tell you how many times I've told them, do not bring food or drink into their bedroom to very quickly find them with Dorito bags in their in their bedrooms, right? And, and, and there's no, I mean, it's just not computing in their brains. Like food equals discipline. Like uh, you're going to get a spanking if you bring food. Like it doesn't matter. Just to, for whatever reason, that one rule does not compute in their brains. Maybe you as a parent have experienced that before. You're telling your kids something and for whatever reason, it doesn't compute, right? They just don't, they don't get it. And so in our text this morning, we're going to find some people, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And this is a, a, a story that you may be familiar with, the story uh, of Stephen, where Stephen gets stoned at the end. Uh, we're not going to focus on that as much as we're going to focus on Stephen's response. So let me kind of set this up. Uh, so we've been walking through Acts, 
and, and we've learned over the past couple of weeks that persecution hasn't stopped the movement of the gospel, right? The gospel is continuing to move. It's continuing to grow to the point to where at the beginning of 6, in verse 1, it says that the number of disciples is increasing. It's, it's continuing to increase and, and, and the reason it's continuing to increase is because disciples make disciples, right? If someone's really truly a follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to go try to bring other people along and say, come on, let, come follow this path with me. Let me point you to the person who gave me life, and I want you to experience life as well. So disciples make disciples, and, and because of that, there's this rapid increase of followers of Jesus, and it's caused some logistical problems, right? If you've ever been part of, of, of a, a church service or church uh, body that, that, that is growing, there's always logistical things, right? You start to realize we don't have enough seats or we don't have enough uh, uh, things, technical equipment, or we don't have this. And you start having to kind of solve some of these different problems, right? They're, they're, they've come to a point to where they got some logistical issues. There's some people that need to be ministered to that are kind of falling through the cracks. And that happens as you grow, you realize we need more staff, we need more people to help make sure that people don't fall through the cracks. And so the disciples realize we need to get some people to help us. And so they appoint some people. And one of those new leaders is Stephen. Okay. And verse eight tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen is, is killing it. He's, he's, he's doing an awesome job. He's tell, proclaiming Christ, and, and he's, he's, God is working through him. And so this leads to more persecution. So ultimately what happens is Stephen gets arrested, and he gets accused of a few things, all right? So uh, chapter 6, verse 11, and then we'll skip to 13 through 14. Here's what it says about Stephen being accused. It says, uh, not only do they accuse him, they, they, they get people to, to testify. It says, they secretly persuaded some men to say... We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They also pre presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place, talking about the temple, and the law. For we heard him say this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All right, so this morning, we're going to spend some time focusing on Stephen's response to these accusations, all right? So he's been brought before the, 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 the Sanhedrin. He's been brought before to, to answer for these accusations. They've gotten people, in fact, to lie and say that he's been saying some blasphemous things. And so here's his response. Uh, and, and we're not going to go through word for word because it's the entire uh, chapter 7. We're not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, but first off, he starts with, something that's very fitting. So he's got a pretty difficult task, right? He's got to defend himself, but he's also trying to preach the gospel to these people at the same time. And he wants to keep their attention, right? Any pastor doesn't want to start losing people. So you try to, he's trying to keep their attention. And so he, he starts with something that he knows will catch their attention. And it's the story about themselves, right? Uh, the, the, the Pharisees were all about the story of God's people, right? Because that's who they were, and they, they really value that. And so if you talk to them, they love to talk about their history. And so he starts off at the very beginning with the father of Israel, Abraham, right? Abraham was a man of faith. God tests him. He follows through. God tells him to migrate. He follows. He does exactly what God tells him to do. Uh, and so God makes this covenant with him. And the reward of the covenant is that God says, hey, look, Abraham, I want you to be my people. I want to have this special relationship with you and your people, right? You're going to have a son, and that's going to just expand to this multitude of people, this huge nation, right? 
And so Abraham's like, I'm really old for this, but okay. And then God ultimately gives him a son. You know the story about Abraham. And, 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 uh, and so Abraham was a man of faith, and he had this special relationship with God. And that was supposed to be the promise that God says, your people are going to be my people, and, and, and we're going to have this special relationship. And you're going to be able to know and commune with me. And so Acts chapter 7, verse 5, here's, here's his response to that. Uh, to some of the accusations that, that he's been given. He says, he didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a, f- a foot ground, talking about Abraham. So Abraham basically had this big promise, but he never really got to see the fulfillment of the promise, right? He didn't get to see this multitude of people. He didn't get to see the, the, the ownership of the land that God said that he's going to give them. Uh, but, but he had this promise. And so it says, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. childless. God spoke in this way, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign country and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. So he's, he's telling about this, this time when Egypt is gonna come and oppress these people, all right? So then he transitions from Abraham and he moves on to Joseph, all right? So Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons would, would become the fathers of a nation but God would choose one of them to save the family. God had plans for Joseph, and the brothers got super upset about it, right? And so there's this promise that, hey, one day these people are going to oppress you, but I'm going to provide in that, right? And so he brings Joseph as the provision, but what, is, what do the brothers do? They reject God's provision, and they sell him into slavery, right? Acts 7, 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, Look what Stephen's doing here, right? He's been accused of some stuff here, but he's turning the tables and said, no, no, no. Our people have been rejecting God from the very beginning. We've been, God's been providing and we've rejected his provision from the very beginning. You're trying to accuse me of this, but you are actually guilty of this from the very beginning. He goes on and he starts talking about Moses, right? So time goes on. Israel ends up enslaved to Egypt, just as God told Abraham. God raises up Moses to bring freedom for his people Israel initially rejects that provision as well too, right? Uh, Acts 7.25, here's what Stephen says. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. God had raised up this, this Moses to be in the house of Pharaoh, the perfect person to free Israel, to help bring stability and to get them out but they rejected him. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside saying, who appointed you as ruler and judge over us? So what does Moses do? He flees, he runs away. God calls him through the burning bush to go back. Verse 35 in chapter seven says, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you as ruler and judge, this one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So God uses Moses' leadership to free Israel. They get to the Red Sea. They see God part the Red Sea in half. Can you imagine, like put yourself in that situation where you're walking up, you got Pharaoh's armies behind you coming up quick and you realize we, we, we have nowhere to go. And God performs this amazing miracle where he splits the Red Sea and they walk right across through. So they get across the Red Sea, they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to hear from God and Israel gets bored of waiting. 
for Moses. They're like, he's taken too long, so let's just form our own God and do our own thing. So Stephen says in verse 39, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, back towards slavery. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So again, God provides, Israel rejects God's provision. And then he transitions to another thing where they, where they, you know, they accuse him of blaspheming the temple. He starts talking about the temple. And so Israel's had this unique gift of communion with God through the tabernacle and then the temple. And the problem, though, is they started to idolize the temple rather than worshiping God. The temple became a status symbol. It became a commodity for them. It was like, hey, all you other nations, you are a bunch of heathens. God doesn't care about you. We have God in our little temple here. This is, this is our, our relationship with God, and nobody else gets to have it. He's in our temple, and, and, and the temple became a status symbol, like we are important people because God lives in our temple, right? And so they started to think more highly of themselves than they should. Stephen says in verse 47 of chapter 7, it was Solomon rather who built him a house, but the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. So Stephen's being accused of rejecting Moses and the founding fathers of Israel, but he turns the script and says, actually, Israel was the one that rejected Moses and the founding fathers. They've always missed it, right? Israel from the very beginning always missed what God had for them because they were so focused on themselves. And so he wraps up this sermon with three accusations. That's where we're gonna be at this morning, verse 51. He wraps up this sermon with three accusations that I wanna spend the rest of our time on. And here's why I think this, is, this text is so important because many of you in here, and many of, myself included, a lot of us, we've grown up in church. We've done the church game for a long time. Right, we, we've, we've done church so long that we know all the social cues, right? We know when you come in, when the corona's not going on, you shake hands, you say, how's it going, brother? Been a great week, bless you, bless you. you know, the whole thing. We know how to do the church lingo. We know how to dress. We know how not to, you know, we don't want to get too messy because that may cause, make people feel uncomfortable. We know how to do church, right? We, we know that you stand, when you stand up, we know when to sit down. We know all of, the, all of the things. But what that can lead to is exactly what Stephen is about to accuse these people of. It's a very dangerous place to be in. To, to have, to, it's a blessing to have grown up in church, but it can also be a very dangerous thing because you get so comfortable with all of the different elements that go with church that you forget that church is not about those elements. Church is about worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so it's incredibly important for those of us who have done church for a long time to heed the warning that Stephen gives to these Pharisees. So, Verse 51, here's what he says. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under that direction of angels and, not, and yet have not kept it. So, this is like an incredibly fiery speech. Like he wraps this up basically with his words, throat punching them, okay? Like he's like, like you have totally missed it and you need to listen to what I have to say because, because this has been 
centuries of missing it, right? It's, it's time to start realizing what this is all about. He starts off, he says, you stiff-necked people, right? Stiff-necked people. So this is a term for cattle that fight the yoke, right? You put this yoke on cattle, and, and sometimes the cattle would not want that around their neck, right? They're, they're going to fight it, and they're going to push, and they're not, they're not going to yield to the person to put the yoke on, right? That's, that's where stiff neck comes from. They're, they're fighting, they're stiffing their neck up and they're fighting. They don't want to be under control. They're unwilling to bow. Uh, several years ago, Jackson, when he was like maybe three, two or three, four, somewhere in there, um, we were at these people's house and uh, he hit their kid. And uh, yeah, and, and so we were like, all right, you gotta apologize. And uh, we're like, go in there and say you're sorry. He was like, no. Which I'm not used to that, right? So we spanked him. All right, let's go back in there and say you're sorry. No. And I was like, wow, this is, this is new. Because when I was a kid, I would have never said no to my dad. So I'm like, I'm apparently not beating him hard enough. So, so I spanked him again. This turned into like multiple time like he was unwilling to yield to, to what I was telling him to do to the point to where we, we even went in there a couple of times and he would just looked at the kid like just boohooing crying and like still wouldn't say anything so we'd have to go back in the bathroom and do it I mean it was like this this unyielding stubbornness inside of him was like I will not submit to you in this particular thing he was unwilling to yield and that's exactly where these people are at right they're unwilling to yield to God. And this is a phrase they would have been familiar with. In Exodus 32, right when all of that stuff is going on at, at Mount Sinai, when they're building that, that, that little statue, they're building this statue, and, and God is in, in the mountain. He's speaking to Moses, and he's like, look, the people down there are making a statue. I just freed them from Egypt, and they're down there making this statue to worship. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 32, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. I've seen these people, they're stiff-necked people, they're unwilling to yield to me. I freed them, I am their God, I'm the one that created them, and they're unwilling to yield to my authority. Being stiff-necked is unyielding to God's authority. It's thinking you know more than God and not surrendering to his lordship. It's this phrase right here. I know God says, but... I know God says this in his word, but it's like God doesn't know the circumstance that you're about to follow but with. It's like he didn't know that that circumstance would exist when he formed the world. I know God's word says this, but should never flow from our mouths. That is a stiff-necked people. At its deepest root, stiff-necked means pride. It's being prideful. Solomon said in Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before the fall. Pride brings destruction because it elevates us over God in our own minds. It, it, it's, it's us saying, I ultimately know more than God how to live my life. Even though God says, don't lie and cheat, we lie and cheat to get ahead. Even though God says, one man, one woman, one lifetime, we decide he must have forgot to add our circumstance in an escape clause 
Even though God says go and make disciples, we think that only applies to preachers and staff people. If God is king, then we are not. And man, that's a good thing. I don't want to be king of my own life because I know that I'm incapable of making choices that are, that are right. So our responsibility to the God that created the universe should always just be bowing and allowing him to place his yoke on us. And he says, Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light in Matthew 11. Right? When we submit ourselves to God, it's not that this is hard, difficult thing. It's we just surrender and let him have control and stop trying to fight. These people thought they had it all figured out. And they spent their entire history fighting against God constantly. God would provide and they'd fight against the provision. They were stiff-necked. They were prideful. He goes on. He says, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. So circumcision was part of God's, of the covenant God made with Abraham. It was supposed to be this outward way to identify God's people. It was an identifier of the communion between God and Israel, right? It was, it was this outward expression of, of saying, I have this special relationship with God. God, God is, is who I submit to. He's the person who has control of my heart. So Stephen is saying that they might have the outward identifier, but their hearts and their ears couldn't be further from God. Their hearts and their ears couldn't be further from God. So uh, you guys remember on Needle and Avenue a long time ago, there was this restaurant. I think right now it's Hamburger Depot. It used to be Cowboy Reds, like way back in the day. All right, so for a long time, Cowboy Reds was really good. You guys remember that? Like their burgers were amazing, right? You go in order, you sit down, and it was like the perfect burger. It was greasy, and it was like the cheese was all melted, and it was, it was just like just perfect. They toasted the bun so it wouldn't get gooey, and it was just a really, really good burger. And I loved, we, we used to go there all the time. I loved eating a burger from Cowboy Reds. It was like the only place that I really like to order a burger. Usually, typically, burgers at restaurants are gross, and I'd rather make one at home. But Cowboy Reds was like a good, nasty, greasy, give you an instant heart attack kind of burger, and I loved it. So, uh, and so we would go there. Well, then we went there one time towards the end of their tenure, and it looked amazing, just like it always did. And I sat down, I'm excited to eat it, and I take a bite of it. And the meat tasted like the smell of like rotten carcass, right? If you've ever, those of you who deer hunt, you typically have a place where you throw your, your stuff, your guts and your stuff. And then when you drive up on that like a week later, it smells like death. Like that's, that's a unique smell, right? And, and if you went during the storms, whenever the freezers went out and you had meat in your freezer, that's the same smell, okay? And so I took a bite out of this burger and, and the taste was like that smell. And it was so gross for one. And for two, it was so, like, discouraging because I was so excited to eat this, like, amazing burger because it looked really good, right? And, and so sometimes we can be like that, right? On the outside, we look like we've got it all figured out. We dress in a way that we've, we've got it figured out. We, we, we present ourselves in a way that we've got it all figured out. But on the inside, we can be incredibly far from God, right? We may know all the things to say. We may know all the things to do so that people think that we're spiritual and that we've got it all figured out, but our hearts can be so far from God. And that's the accusation here that Stephen brings. These guys, they're checking all the boxes outwardly, right? They were, to all of the other people, 
the, the religious elites. They were the people who had it all figured out. They were the people who everybody thought these, these are the epitome of spirituality, right? These are the people who have the closest relationship with God. But it wasn't real. It was just some check boxes. Their relationship with God was non-existent. They were more concerned with people's perception and the status that came along with their position than knowing and communing with God. They didn't care about knowing and communing with God. They hadn't heard from God in, in, in years. All they cared about was the fact that people thought that they communed with God. All they cared about was the, the fact that people thought that they were good, wholesome, religious people. And Jesus actually speaks to this too in Matthew 23 Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. Listen, this is the most dangerous pitfall for those of us who have grown up in church. This is the most dangerous thing that we can allow happen to our hearts to where we, for whatever reason, feel like we need to still present ourselves as spiritual and in close in relationship with God, but yet our hearts are like completely dead, empty bones, right? That's an incredibly dangerous place to be as a believer to come and present yourself as, as this person who's got it all figured out, but, but you're so far from God that, that you haven't heard from him in years. We can get really wrapped up in the weeds, making sure that we attend everything at the church, making sure that we dress a certain way, making sure that we maintain the appearance, that we have it all together. But when then that's our focus, we start to miss it. We start to miss what this is really all about. This is not about checking the boxes. This is not about church attendance. This is not about all of the religious check boxes. This is about knowing and communing with the God that created the universe. This is about having a relationship with God. God is less concerned with your behavior than he is with your heart. Why? Because he knows if he has your heart, he has your behavior. When I was doing those music lessons many years ago, a lot of parents want something for their kid that their kid doesn't want for themselves, right? They want their kid to be musical, and, and so, and they want their kid to be in something, so they, they push their kid into this thing, or maybe even the kid, like, is like, hey, it'd be cool if I played drums or if I played guitar or whatever, and so they think, like, I, I want to do that, but when they realize that there's work involved and it's not just instantly shredding on a guitar like, you know, Van Halen or something, they realize like, okay, this isn't what I signed up for, right? And, and you realize real quick, they didn't really want to learn music. They just wanted to look like they knew how to play music, right? And, and so uh, we, we, I dealt with this all the time. And, and what I realized is that you can't help a kid learn to play an instrument unless they want to learn to play the instrument, right? You can teach them all they want, but if they aren't going home and practicing because they really want it, they're never going to learn how to play it. But if they do love the music, they excel just like that, quick, because they want it. They love it. They want to, to learn more about the music, and, and so they're going to invest in it. When we love God, the behavior will follow. It'll follow suit. If we love God, we're going to live righteous lives. If we love God, church attendance is not going to be an issue. If we love God, giving won't be a question. If we love God, personal evangelism and discipleship will become part of who we are. It's, it's not that we have to do all those things 
because that's what God says to do. It's, it's that if we really genuinely love God, then all of the other things follow suit. And we don't have to worry about the, all the checkboxes because the checkboxes just naturally happen out of an outflow of a love for God. If we're just doing all these things because we want to feel right or like we're better than other people, then we have missed the point. We've missed the point. If all of this is just so that you can feel good about yourself, you've missed it. You've missed it. This is all about a love for God. Why? Because he loved us and he gave himself for us. Stephen wraps up with this. He says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as, the, as your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? God constantly sent provisions saying, hey, change your ways, change your ways, change your ways. Constantly sending these prophets and Israel constantly rejects them. It says they even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. Hey, you killed all these prophets that told about the Messiah whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You killed the Messiah. That's what he's saying. You're, you're trying to accuse me of all of this blasphemous stuff. You killed the Messiah himself. You killed God himself. That's what he's saying. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. He's saying, hey, you may have been checking the boxes, but in your heart, you've not been keeping the law. You're just as far from God as anybody else. When uh, I first started to learn to play guitar, if you've ever played guitar, you realize like very quickly your fingers, like it hurts the first few times, like really bad to the point to where if you're like really committed and playing a lot, your fingers start to bleed. And, and, and but then over time, you, you, if you really are like invested, you love the guitar so much that, that you play through that and eventually you grow calluses on your fingers, right? My fingers right here are like really gross looking. I could stick a needle in them and I don't feel it because I've been playing guitar for so long. I got these calluses built up because for so long I ignored the pain and just kept playing because I wanted to learn to play. And, and, uh, and so you, you build these calluses up. Those of you who played sports, you probably have calluses. Those of you who work with your hands, you've got calluses. I've, uh, you know, like men, like my grandpa worked on ships uh, as a kid and his hands were like straight up like just like raw sandpaper is what they felt like. I mean, he had these like big old man hands. And, uh, and so you build these calluses and, and that calluses come from ignoring the pain, right? You just ignore and work through it. That's what's happened here with these religious leaders. They've ignored the Holy Spirit so long that they don't hear him anymore. They've ignored the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over and over again. They don't even, they don't even hear him anymore. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians verse five, or chapter 5, verse 19. He says, don't stifle the Spirit. Stifling the Spirit comes from choosing your own selfish desires over love, faith, and intimacy with God. The more you do that, the more hardened your heart becomes. And here, here's, here's the scary, dangerous part. A hardened heart can lead you to do things that you would have never dreamed you would have ever done. Right? We all have this line in our mind and we'd say, I would never do that. But as you ignore the Holy Spirit, your heart becomes hardened to the Holy Spirit and you start to cross lines that you never thought you would have ever crossed. That's why we hear stories about pastors having affairs and stealing money and doing all this crazy stuff. It's because they've allowed their hearts to harden so much to the point to where they don't hear the Holy Spirit anymore. And then they cross a line they, they, you would have never thought. And they would have never thought. And it's so easy to get to that point. It's, it's, it's really easy for us to look at the Israel in Scripture and think, 
What was wrong with those people? How could they miss it? It was right there in front of them. But we do the same thing all the time. So what's the answer? We need to learn to welcome the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life. We need to learn to welcome the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life. When we hear and feel conviction, we need to rejoice in that and not push it away. Jesus says in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says, hey, there's this helper. The Holy Spirit's conviction in your life is a help. You need to welcome it, not push it away, but, but rejoice in it. When I was a kid, my dad like I said earlier, was very much the discipline, disciplinarian in our family. Like, he constantly was disciplining us. And I remember as a kid hating that, especially when I was a teenager and he was trying to, like, instill work ethic and, and he'd make us go mow the, if, like, if I didn't do it exactly perfect, he'd be like, nah, go back out there and do it again. And I remember, like, being so upset over that, like, angry, like, I have things to do. Why are you making me do this? It's not that big of a deal. Why are you making me do this again? But now that I'm older... I'm so thankful that he instilled that in me. I'm so thankful that he was like, no, you're going to go back and do it right because he wanted to produce in me something that was important, right? So many people hate it when God's spirit disciplines them. They hate conviction. I uh, heard some people one time say that they didn't want to attend uh, the church that I was at before I came back to fellowship they didn't want to attend that church because every time the pastor spoke, it just it made me feel bad about myself. That's the point. It's not that you feel bad about yourself. It's, it's, it's called conviction. It's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, here's some things in your life that, that don't match up with what Scripture says. You need to change that. And instead of saying, I just don't like it. I want to go somewhere where they, they make me feel good about myself. When I go to this other church, it makes me feel really good about myself. It makes me feel like, like I've, I'm doing, doing right. That's not something that we should be proud to say to somebody else. We should mourn the fact that we don't welcome conviction, right? The whole point of Scripture is for reproof and rebuke. It's to say, hey, you're not doing this right. You need to look more like Christ. And when, you, when you're convicted of that, don't run from that. That's stifling the Spirit. That's you saying, no, 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say, Holy Spirit. No, no, leave me alone. I don't want to be changed. I want to be who I am, and I want your word to match who I am. That's stiff-necked. We're going back to the beginning. We should welcome conviction because when we don't, it'll lead us to, think, to do things we never would have thought we would have ever done. If God is king and we love him, it makes sense that we would welcome his leading in our life. It makes sense that we would welcome conviction. If God is king in your life and you want what he wants for your life, and you genuinely love him, you're going to welcome that conviction. You're never going to want to go to a place where they're just trying to make you feel good about yourself. You're going to want to go to a place where they're going to say, hey, here's some stuff what the word says, and if you don't match this, you need to change your life. So Stephen delivers this sermon, and unfortunately these people fulfill exactly what he accuses them of. Instead of listening to the Spirit in that moment and realizing, man, we've messed up. Like, if you look at the text, there's some crazy things that happen, like heaven opens up and, and, and his face is all glowing and stuff. And, and instead of recognizing, wow, there's something to this, 
they just totally reject what's going on. They refuse to submit to God's word. They choose to continue with their facade, and they choose to ignore conviction, and the hardness of their heart leads them down a dark path. It leads them to do things they would have never thought they would have ever done. If you would have told these people at some point when they first started, hey, one day you're going to kill the Messiah that the scriptures talk about, they'd have been like, no, I would never do that. You said, hey, one day you're going to kill this messenger of God named Stephen. They'd be like, no, I would never, I would don't, I'm not going to, I'm not a murderer, I would never do that. But because they kept ignoring the Holy Spirit and kept pushing away conviction, it's exactly what they did. Verse 54, when they heard these things, it says they were enraged. If you look at the language there, it actually says that it pierced to their hearts, so they felt the conviction and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And here, listen to this. Listen to how crazy this is. They yelled at the top of their voices and covered their ears and together rushed against him. What does that sound like? It sounds like my kids, like little kids. No, 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 I don't want to hear you, right? We're not going to listen to what you have to say. They're seeing this miraculous event and they're like, no, 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 we're going to kill you anyway. How crazy is that? They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. They thought that they knew better than God himself. They valued religion, public perception, and prestige more than God himself. And they had stifled the voice of the Spirit so much that their hearts hardened, and it led them to kill Jesus, and it led them to kill Stephen. That's the part they play in history. They'll always be remembered as prideful, fake, and calloused. So the question this morning is, what about you? What part will you play in history? Will you be like these people, stiff-necked, fake, calloused towards the Spirit's leading in your life? Or will you choose this morning to decide to allow God to be the king of your life? Will you choose this morning to stop putting up this fake facade of this person who has it all figured out and recognize the sin in your life and mourn it? And will you this morning choose not to run from conviction, but to run towards it? Not to run from the Holy Spirit's leading your life, but to say, God, like David said, change my heart. Change my heart, oh God. David gets caught in this horrible act where he's killed Uriah and he's got Bathsheba pregnant. And his response to that, once he gets caught, his response to that was, change my heart, oh God. Change me. He wanted conviction. He wanted to change. He didn't want to be the person that he was. My hope and my prayer for us this morning is that we would never become like this. We would never become a people who run from the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. We would never become a people who are fake, who just check boxes and come to church just so that we can say that we did it or we feel better about ourselves. 
that we would never be a people that are so prideful that we're not willing to submit to God's authority in our life. We would never be a people who say, I know God's word says this, but let's never be that. Let's be a people that surrender to God. Let's be a people who welcome that, that, that Holy Spirit's leading and conviction. Because when we do, God's going to do abundant and great things through us. He's going to move in this church like we can't even fathom if we're willing to surrender ourselves to him and welcome the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for this, this challenge in your word that Stephen gives. And God, I confess that as I read this, there are moments in my life where I see myself in this story, and it's not as the character of Stephen, it's the character of these Pharisees. There have been moments in my life where I have no doubt been prideful. There are doubt, no doubt have rejected the Holy Spirit's leading and no doubt have put up this facade. But God, your spirit convicted me and has changed me and continued to pull me and lead me in the direction that you would have me go. And God, I pray that I would never avoid that conviction in my life. God, I pray for the people here this morning that we would never run from your conviction. That we wouldn't look to our faith, that we wouldn't look at our faith as, as this source of, of fluff, of, as a source to make us feel better about who we are, but that we would look at our faith as, as what it is. It's, it's the opportunity, it's the gateway that leads us to be able to know and commune with you and, and what a treasured gift that is, God. But God, you don't leave us where we're at when we come to that moment of faith and surrender, but you continue to mold and shape and challenge us. And so, God, I pray that this morning that we would welcome that, that challenge in our life. God, I pray that this morning as, as we sing in a moment, that we would sing with pure hearts. That we wouldn't sing because it's the next segment in church, but we would sing because we love you. That God, as we go home and, and we do dig in, into your word and we, and, we, and we look at what your word has to say to us on, on a daily basis, that we wouldn't do that just because it's the thing that Christians are supposed to do, but that we would do that with this sincere heart of wanting to know more about who you are. And God, when we kneel before you in prayer, I pray that we wouldn't do that as this checkbox thing because that's what your word says to do, but that we would do it because we genuinely want to share our hearts with you because we love you. And that we love you because of what you've done for us. You loved us first. So God, I pray that you, in this moment, if there are areas in our lives that need to be changed, God, I pray that we would welcome the conviction, that we would mourn the sin in our life. We wouldn't try to fake it and, and make people think that we have it all together, but we would mourn the sin in our life and that we would surrender to it because we're not prideful. We understand that your way is the best way. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for what you've done for fellowship. We thank you for what we know that you're going to continue to do in and through this church. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.